Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The biggest trends, the latest business ventures, and the boldest investments pushing the continent forward. We're all required to build a better Africa. Who will see profits? What opportunities will come? Where will growth take shape? We've positioned ourselves within the community that we want to empower. And how will it all impact the global economy? People are beginning to see that intellect, talent, technical skills also exist here. Join me, Zane Asher, on Marketplace Africa. Saturday on CNN. The world's economy runs on trade. So how do visionaries, entrepreneurs and companies leverage advancements in tech and logistics to test the limits of possibility? No problem. Enter your data. From sustainable practices to newly formed supply chains, see how a more efficiently connected world creates opportunities for all. We are stepping in something new, something fresh, something challenging. Global Connections, Saturday on CNN. I'm Wolf Blitzer. This is Sienna. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us as we begin a whole new week. And coming up on today's show, Bridge Blast. Ukraine attacking the vital bridge connecting the Crimean Peninsula to Russia. We've got all the latest on that. And the grain deal gutted. Just hours after that bridge attack, the Kremlin announcing it will not extend the crucial Black Sea grain agreement that provides safe passage for Ukraine's grain exports around the world. We've got a live report on that just ahead. Plus, China's growth challenge, the world's second largest economy, growing by 0.8% in the second quarter compared to the previous one. Watch the consumer, too, after retail sales disappointed and youth unemployment hit a record high of 21%. And remember, that's what the country's admitting to. As you could imagine, that provided a serious sentiment dent across the Asia stock market session. Shanghai falling almost 1%. Seoul finished in the red, as you can see there, too. Hong Kong was closed because of a typhoon, while Tokyo was closed for a holiday. So we'll have to see what catch-up we see overnight and in Tuesday's session. In the meantime, here in New York, stock market futures are lower ahead of a busy week for corporate earnings stateside, including guidance from some of the nation's largest banks. It does, however, though, follow a winning week last week on Wall Street, with the Nasdaq jumping more than 3%. A busy show ahead, as always. We do begin in Ukraine. And Kyiv claiming responsibility for an explosion on the bridge over the Kirsch Strait, saying it was carried out by its security services in a joint operation with the Navy. That, according to a source... The governor of Russia's Belgorod region says two people lost their lives. 
The Kush Bridge serves as a crucial supply route in Moscow's war effort, as Alex Marquardt reports. This bridge was opened back uh, in 2018. Now Ukraine is rather surprisingly claiming responsibility. Often they do not claim responsibility for these types of brazen attacks. But Kyiv is saying that it was its Navy in a joint operation with the SBU, that's the domestic security services, that carried out uh, this attack. We believe it was around 3 a.m. local time, according to Russian authorities, which have called this a terrorist attack. It was carried out by uh, sea or surface drones. In terms of the destruction, the roadway uh, from pictures and video that we've seen was severely damaged and traffic uh, came to a halt. Uh, Parallel to that roadway are train tracks and it appears that the trains have kept running uh, but with some delay. We have seen images coming from a train indicating that the trains are still running. Uh, This was a deadly attack. At least two adults were killed. That's according to an official in the Belgorod region. We believe that they are parents and that their young child was injured. But this is extraordinarily uh, significant. This bridge opened in 2018, as I mentioned. It cost almost $4 billion uh, to build. It was a personal project of President Vladimir Putin's. When, he, when the bridge was opened, uh, he drove across it himself uh, in a truck. It spans around uh, 12 miles or, or uh, 19 kilometers. And then the last time there was an attack on this bridge in October, which, mind you, Ukraine did not claim, uh, the, uh, it, it resulted in a significant series of strikes, the heaviest strikes that we had seen from Russia against Ukraine since the war began. And now to Russia's termination of the Black Sea grain deal under that agreement brokered by the United Nations and Turkey a year ago. Russia allowed Ukrainian ships carrying exports of grain to pass through its naval blockade. The effects of Moscow's withdrawal will be felt far beyond Ukraine and could once again have a significant impact on food prices worldwide. Just to give you a sense of the reaction that we're already seeing, the price of wheat up almost 3% currently. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, More details on why Russia was pulled out, because they have been threatening, let's be clear, for many weeks, saying they wanted access to be able to export their own goods Mm. in a more comprehensive manner. They didn't get the concessions they were asking for. And here we are. Yeah, as you say, it's unsurprising. And as Mm. the Russian government spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, said, unrelated to the attack on the bridge yesterday, this was expected for some weeks. The deal was due to expire today. So what Russia would like is to see its exports unhindered by indirectly by sort of sanctions, whether it's payments, insurance and shipping. But in terms of the exports of their grain, they want to see more on the table for that. So Peskov told reporters today, unfortunately, the part of these Black Sea agreements concerning Russia has not been implemented so far, so its effect is terminated. Now, that does mean that there is some room here, perhaps for negotiation. Perhaps the, uh, the deal can be uh, resurrected if Western allies can find a way uh, to reach an agreement that allows Russia to export more agricultural produce. Until it does, though, you, I, th- I think we will see wheat prices elevated. As you said, they're already up nearly 3% today. And this comes after the UN actually said that food prices had fallen some 20% since March of last year from their peak prices. And of course, this doesn't just impact Ukraine and its ability to export grains, wheat and so on. It impacts uh, all of those countries that exports to. More than 50% are developing countries and global food prices. So if this deal isn't resurrected, we could see an elevated food price for some time to come. That impacts inflation, interest rates, the world over. Julia? 
Absolutely. I was about to say, I'm actually surprised by the lack of reaction in wheat prices at this stage, but I think there's clearly some inbuilt optimism here that mm. some kind of solution will be found and an extension provided. We'll see. Anna, great to have you. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. China's economic recovery losing steam. The world's second largest economy expanding at an annual rate of 6.3% in the second quarter, slower than expected. However, compared to the first quarter, growth was a sluggish 0.8%. Mark Stewart joins us now. I think most of us are dazed and confused by those numbers. But the key here is the comparisons to what we've got in 2022, which flatter these numbers because that data was so poor. What's the story here in terms of the degree of slowing, Mark? How worried should we be and what more support from the government can we hope for? Well, Julia, I was thinking about our many conversations over the last few months about all of these different realities facing China. Well, they are certainly reflected in the data that we have seen today. And yes, this, these numbers seem to be staggering. But consider it was one year ago under zero COVID lockdowns where everything was pretty flat. So whatever we see, obviously, is going to be dramatic. But if we're talking about GDP, if we're talking about productivity and growth, in order to achieve that, you have to have money moving. That can be through investment by business. It can be through consumer spending. And one way to do that is through stimulus. It It's it's kind of been that true and tried uh, tool that we have seen in the pandemic in many economies around the world. So uh, expect to see perhaps uh, some some calls here in China to do that. I was looking at a memo sent out this morning, a note this morning from Deutsche Bank, and it was saying, do not be surprised that these cries get louder to do stimulus, to convince uh, China to engage in stimulus, especially as the Politburo, the, the legislative body, meets later this month. So stimulus is going to be one one key thing to look out for. Other things that are taking place and may have a bigger role certainly are our uh, interest rate cuts. It's something that we have seen from the Bank of China, the People's Bank of China, although, as we have seen, that does take patience. Interesting to note that there are incentives now to get Chinese consumers to buy electric vehicles. As we've discussed, the EV market is something that's actually booming right now in China. Also, we're going to go back to this theme in China about regulation uh, and trying to ease some of the regulations, specifically among tech companies. We've seen a crackdown. We saw Premier Li Chen. Um, have a meeting with with tech companies, including um, Alibaba, including ByteDance. Also on this list is AI. That is seen as a way to to get new business going. There is a draft, as we've reported, of different regulations concerning AI in China. Some of that has been relaxed. Again, China is really trying to make this environment friendly for both businesses and consumers. But despite everything that may be tried that is on the table, Julia, as you well know, the world is still facing economic uncertainty. And that could easily seep into the best made plans by China to try to revive things, to get things going up once again. Yeah, I love the concept of um, providing money and following the financial flows. And and ultimately, you reach the answers that the problem here is they've juiced the economy with loan growth, which is a challenge. You can't go to the property sector now because it's been uh, a bubble that's essentially popped. So looking for those levels Mm. of growth is so challenging. Um, I like the, the technology angle as a way to achieve that. It's going to be interesting to see. Mark Stewart, thank you. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry landing in China amid searing heat on Sunday. Beijing, the venue for crucial climate talks between the two largest economies and the two biggest polluters in the world. They both say cooperation on climate is key 
but that's more or less been frozen amid severe political tensions. Anna Corrin is in Hong Kong with more. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry held a four-hour meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, on the first official day of his trip to Beijing in the hope to regain momentum on climate talks between the two superpowers. Before the meeting, Xi said China is seeking substantial dialogue this week that could contribute to, quote, improving our bilateral relations. The world's two largest economies are the world's two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, accounting for 40 percent of global emissions. And both sides realise the need for cooperation if they are to drastically cut fossil fuel production and ease global warming. Almost a year ago, climate talks between the U.S. and China came to a standstill after then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Beijing severed talks in protest. But there have been a slew of high-level meetings in the past month to improve this strained relationship, starting with U.S. Secretary of State, then the Treasury Secretary, now U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is in Beijing for talks. Kerry and Shea have history and have met more than 50 times. They worked together in 2021 for COP26 in Glasgow, where they made real progress. They then met on the sidelines of COP27 in Egypt of last year. Then in January of this year, the two talked via video link. Communications have continued despite strained relations. This face-to-face meeting is important. It's about resuming their joint working group on climate cooperation before COP28 in Dubai at the end of November. Kerry said it was imperative that China and the US make real progress in the next four months. Kerry also said, In the next three days, we hope we can begin taking big steps that will send a signal to the world about the serious purpose of China and the US to address a common risk, threat, challenge to all of humanity created by humans themselves. Kerry will meet with other Chinese officials over the next few days, possibly even Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Kerry and Xi met when he was U.S. Secretary of State under President Obama. Experts believe that meeting would send an important signal of Beijing's commitment to tackling global warming. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. And speaking of that, extreme floods, record-breaking temperatures and the risk of more Canadian wildfire smoke. That's the weather report from the United States, where more than 35 temperature records were broken across the nation on Sunday. More than 80 million people, in fact, are facing dangerously high temperatures as what's known as a heat dome remains locked over the western part of the nation. California, Nevada and Arizona are seeing heat above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And CNN's Rafael Romo joins us now from Las Vegas, Nevada, where an excessive heat warning is in effect. Great to have you with us. Just explain how people there are managing it and what the authorities are saying. Yeah, Julia, it's been very hard for people around here. The heat wave is definitely not over yet. An excessive heat warning remains in effect for parts of the state you just mentioned, Arizona, California, and Nevada. And the National Weather Service says dangerously hot afternoons with little overnight relief are expected, adding that this will result in a major to extreme risk of heat-related illness for much of the population. Here in Las Vegas, high temperatures were well over 40 degrees Celsius during the weekend and are expected to remain there during the week. Earlier, I spoke with a ranger at Death Valley National Park in California, also known as the hottest place on earth, and he told us what worries them is that this extreme weather seems to be a trend instead of a single occurrence. 
what we're seeing here in Death Valley is certainly that things are getting hotter. Seven of our 10 hottest summers have come in the last 10 years. Um, and that's, you know, obviously a global trend. Here in Las Vegas, organizations are trying to make sure nobody goes without water, making an effort to take care of people without a home. This is how a woman who's part of this effort explained their decision to help. It's life and death. I mean, it, there's no joking about that. That is literally, this water will save a life. They're literally baking on the streets. And Julia, over the weekend here in Las Vegas, people were wondering if the old-time record of 117 degrees Fahrenheit, 47 degrees Celsius, was going to be broken. The temperature fell short yesterday, but only by a couple of degrees. The National Weather Service says this heat wave is not typical. Desert heat due to its long duration, extreme daytime temperatures, and warm nights. They also say that everyone needs to take this heat seriously, including those who live in places like this one in the desert. Back to you. Wow, I'm just looking at the asphalt um, temperature. No bare feet allowed. Don't forget your flip-flops. Exhausting heat. Yes. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Raphael. All right, Southern Europe is also sweltering amid a severe heat wave right in the middle of the summer tourist season. In Italy, at least one person died and several tourists collapsed from the extreme heat. Rome is one of 16 Italian cities under a warning of extreme risk to health due to the severely high temperatures. And on La Palma in Spain's Canary Islands, an out-of-control forest fire has forced at least 4,000 people to leave their homes. Wow. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Stay with CNN. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. The recovery in the world's second largest economy losing pace. GDP expanded 6.3% in the second quarter. That's on a year-on-year -year basis. That was well below expectations. And the disappointments continue. Indicators like record high youth unemployment to slowing retail sales and faltering business confidence are now raising expectations of further government support. To give us some context, joining us now, Derek Scissors, Chief Economist at China Beige Book. He's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, good to have you with us. Can you please just start by putting some of these percentages into perspective for us. We know 2022 was incredibly weak because China was still in lockdown. So it flatters the numbers that we're getting this year. But yet everybody's concerned that we're seeing slowing. Context, please. Right. 6.3% year-on-year GDP growth sounds great. 
Yes. Um, but last year, during the second quarter, Shanghai was hit with a COVID outbreak. China was essentially in a recession. People thought this was going to be the quarter that, that really made all of 2023. They thought we could get 7.5% growth uh, on year, and we were well below that, which puts all of 2023 in jeopardy because of the rest of the year is going to be more normal, and we're going to see numbers in the fours. And then the, the, the kicker there is we actually saw outright deflation in the second quarter. Uh, real growth was faster than nominal growth, meaning the inflation adjustment was negative. And outright deflation is a very scary thing because it tends to become embedded and that means slow growth going forward. This caught my attention too. In a world of still excessively high but coming or cooling prices, China's price weakness stands out. And it's not just about consumer prices. It's also in the producer prices, which for me suggests that they're anticipating demand weakness, which is not just about China, but it has implications for the rest of the world too. Just expand on, on what we're seeing there and, and that concern. Right. Consumer prices are basically flat right now, or at least on the latest reading, which is not good. You, you want mild consumer inflation, less than we've had around the world recently, but more than we see in China. But then producer prices are outright negative, and they have been for a while. So the, the normal story in China is there's too much supply. Uh, China tends to overbuild in key industries and have too many firms, and then they send their supply overseas. That's a concern. As you said, we now have inadequate demand, certainly in China, and it appears to be truer around the world, uh, possibly with the exception of the U.S. So we have a one-two punch, too much supply in China, weak demand globally and in China, and you get this negative producer price trend. Yeah, it makes the consumption data and the retail sales data all that more important to watch. Uh, the other thing that leaps out is the youth unemployment rate. In fact, jobs in general quite frankly, vitally important for um, maintaining confidence in government, local government and the centralised government in China is jobs growth. And what was it, 12 million jobs, I believe, they said last year that they managed to provide. What's the expectation this year and what do you make of the admission of a record high youth unemployment rate? Yeah, so the people are focusing on youth unemployment with good reason. When, when anyone says any sort of unemployment is 21 percent, it gets your attention. Uh, a supplement to that is last year when China really underperformed because of zero COVID and everyone thought it was a terrible year, they claimed they created 12 million new jobs, as you said. And this year they're not claiming anything, which is very odd. You'd think this year where things are better, they, they're not much better, but they are better, that we get more claims of job creation. So we have a one-two punch. There's clearly a problem in, in the youth segment of the labor market, but also the dynamism of the economy. China's gone silent on it. After being perfectly willing to talk about it last year in a bad year, it almost makes it seem that this year is worse for the labor market. Do you believe the data, Derek? Do you believe that if they're well, saying, gone? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I generally don't. I, I mean, the unemployment figures, the way China counts unemployment, it actually exaggerates youth unemployment and understates everyone else's unemployment because you have to be in the labor market for a while uh, in order to count. Um, they have a number of problems with, 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 with other data over time. Uh, I don't necessarily believe their price measurements. So I will say the government's willingness to be realistic, um, you know, they're not putting out a false jobs number. They're just not telling us. They were willing to report slower growth. I find that somewhat reassuring. 
But it's also the case that when you, you know, it'll be typically that when the provinces report their own growth, very few of them will be below the national average. That's a problem China's had for a long time, and they've never even tried to fix it. I mean, how do you even fix that? I just, if I'm thinking about, let's assume we believe the data and it is fairly accurate, a fifth of young people out of jobs, that's in this economy, a lot of parents that are supporting an extra person, writing checks, that's going to have an impact on confidence. That's going to have an impact on on the consumption concerns that we're talking about for, for the rest of the year, if, if not beyond. To your point about hoping for some kind of um, silver lining in the rest of the year, I, I sort of struggle to see where it comes from and how they generate that in the short term, if not through stimulus. Well, so before getting to stimulus, you're exactly right. I mean, China's households have disappointed everyone by saving so much. But if you have uh, a child or a young adult who has, you know, a one in five chance of, of being unemployed, and they're talking about higher unemployment in July, you have reason to save. So then everybody, as you said, switches to talking about stimulus. But in fact, China's already trying monetary stimulus. Loan growth, the stock of loans are growing more than twice as fast as GDP. Um, so, you know, you're trying that, it's not working. And on the fiscal side, China's fiscal spending has always been directed at firms and at production, mm. especially you know, of new buildings, for example, on the construction side. Those are not the jobs anyone wants, and China's already overspent in that area. So you can talk about stimulus, but it's not obvious how to make stimulus work. What's your forecast for this year? I've noticed a number of analysts already this morning cutting their growth forecast for China this year. Where do you lie now? And what is the best way in your mind? How can they improve the situation? Well, I should say that I expected a better year this year than we've seen. So uh, I, I have to do what everyone else is doing and revise my forecast down. I think they'll make 5% because um, the party, when it's close, tends to make its targets. As in, if it's 4.5%, they're going to report 5%. A lot of us, including me, were expecting something more like 7 um, in terms of how to make the economy better, we may have seen a step in the last few weeks of ending the crackdown on private tech firms, uh, such as Alibaba and Tencent, not just them, but, but uh, and certainly including them. That would be a step in the right direction. It's only one. Uh, other steps would have to be taken to, to allow the market a little more play to encourage consumption. But that would be more useful. That is more useful than saying, oh, you know, we're going to have 12% growth loan growth instead of 11%. So that would be the way for the year to be stronger than expected. Yeah, help address the lack of confidence from international investors. And that's something clearly that monetary policy at this stage can't help address. Um, yes, Derek, good to get your perspective. Thank you. Derek Scissors, their chief Thank economist you. at China Beige Book. Thank you. Okay, after the break, a cash conundrum at Twitter. We'll discuss what Elon Musk revealed about the company's finances after the break. Welcome back to First Move. And I can't believe I didn't know this, but there you can see it. It's World Emoji Day apparently being celebrated at the New York Stock Exchange. Imagine being one of those employees that were told they could be on the balcony but had to dress as an emoji. Yes. <laughs> Here's a look at the uh, opening bell and market open this morning. We were expecting quiet trade ahead of a series of corporate earnings this week, including Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Netflix 
and Tesla, of course, too. It's a mixed bag, but the Nasdaq does seem to be looking to add to last week's gains, too. Here's a look at Activision Blizzard, though, and Tesla shares of Elon Musk's company higher as it rolls out its first Cybertruck. And Activision Blizzard also up as well after Microsoft reached an agreement to keep the Call of Duty series on Sony PlayStation. That stock up some 3.5% in early trade. Now, speaking of Elon Musk and Tesla and emojis, of course, too. There's a link. Elon Musk revealing that Twitter has lost around half of its advertising revenue and still has a negative cash flow. It was in response to business advice from a follower. The billionaire tweeted, quote, need to reach positive cash flow before we have the luxury of anything else. It's a stark contrast to his tone just a few months ago when he told the BBC that Twitter is roughly breaking even and that most of its advertisers have returned. Claire Duffy joins us now. That's an interesting one. I guess all those things could be true because the cash burn could have reduced and all advertisers may have returned. They're just giving him half the money. Um, But one has to question. Yeah, great. I agree with you. Raise hands moment. There's an emoji for that. Yeah, Julie, I mean, it's hard to know how, what to believe in terms of what Elon Musk is saying about this company. You have much earlier this year him warning that the company could face bankruptcy. Then in April, he's telling the BBC that the company is nearly break even and that most advertisers have returned. And now we're getting this tweet where he says that the company is down about 50 percent in advertising revenue and the cash flow is still negative. This 50 percent figure does track a bit more with what we understood about the state of the company. We reported in June that about 60 percent of Twitter's top 1,000 advertisers before Musk's takeover had stopped their spending on the platform as of April. The New York Times also reported last month that Twitter's ad revenue was down about 60%. So this seems a bit more in line with what we understood about the state of the company. And I do think this tweet is a reminder of just how important advertising revenue is to Twitter. Elon Musk has been trying to grow these other revenue streams, charging for verification, charging users to use TweetDeck. And yet, unless they can get advertisers to return to the platform, this company is still going to be struggling. And I also think, Julie, it's interesting. It's about a month and a half since Twitter's new CEO, Linda Yaccarino, started in the role. She's a former advertising exec who was hired with the hope that she could help convince advertisers to return to this platform. And I think this is a reminder that she still has a long way to go in that respect. I've met her and she's, she's pretty punchy. So I wonder as well whether some of the um, sort of get real and be honest about the, about the facts and the situation here is um, part of some of the shift we're seeing. This, of course, and the difference between break-even and now some greater understanding of what's going on with the financials has happened since Threads was launched, of course, by Meta, formerly Facebook. And you and I have talked about that in the past, too. Now, one could argue there's even more competition for that advertising money. Absolutely. I mean, Meta hasn't started allowing advertising on threads just yet, but I can imagine a lot of advertisers are probably in a sort of wait and see mode to see if more users leave Twitter or if Twitter, you know, new people don't join Twitter. They join threads instead. And so, you know, advertisers for a lot of this year have been in sort of a wait and see mode to see what Elon Musk does with this platform. And I think this is only going to continue that sort of period of waiting to see whether they want to be on Twitter or not. Very quick question. Did we ever get to the bottom? You and I were discussing this of the terminology of threads. Yeah, so uh, Instagram CEO Adam Masseri, who is running Threads, said that a post on Thread is called a post. And if you have multiple posts in a row, it's a thread. But it's not like a tweet where a post is called a thread. So it's still a little confusing to me. But when you post on Threads, it is supposedly called a post, not a thread. You could be posting on anything if you're posting. (laughs) So that's ambitious, I think, to suggest that they're going to harness the name post and only refer to them. Mm -mm. I think, yeah, a little sign that things are tricky there. (laughs) 
I need to rethink that name. Too late now. Thank you. Okay, meanwhile, former employees of Twitter's only office in Africa say they never received severance pay. The layoffs were part of Elon Musk's global cost-cutting plan just four days after Twitter opened an office in Ghana's capital of Accra. As part of the cuts, staffers accepted Twitter's offer to pay them three months severance, but seven months later they say they haven't seen a cent. And CNN has reached out to Twitter for comment. Larry Madero joins us now. This is great reporting. Important to understand how this is all being handled. What were these people saying to you and, and what do they think is going on several months later? Julia, CNN has spoken exclusively to several former employees of Twitter's only African office in Ghana as well as their attorney and they say their last day at Twitter officially was December 4th. We're in July now and they still have not seen a cent. Initially, Twitter was not even going to negotiate with them until CNN reported on their case. And then Twitter came back and said, fine, we can negotiate. They believe that Twitter lowballed them and only agreed, offered them three months of severance. No benefits, no stocks vesting, nothing else compared to what people in Europe and North America received. But they were tired of this drawn-out process. They didn't want to take on the extra burden of a court case, so they agreed to it. That was back in May. So far, silence from Twitter. In fact, one of them told me they literally ghosted us. And they don't understand why this is happening to them. They're a small team of just 11 people. They're not hundreds of people that worked for Twitter in Africa. I want to read a quote for you from their attorney who's been representing them from the beginning, um, Carla Olympio. She says, unfortunately, it appears that after having unethically implemented their terminations in violation of their own promises and Ghana's laws, dragging the negotiation process out for over half a year, now that we have come to the point of almost settlement, there has been complete silence for, from them for several weeks. And she says they're considering legal action against Twitter in various jurisdictions, including in Ghana. And we reached out to Twitter, Julia, for a comment regarding the status of these 11 former employees of Twitter. It seems unlikely that the world's richest man can't pay severance to just 11 people. We got back what is now an automated response for all press inquiries, a poop emoji. Yeah, and that's been the case since March. Any effort to get in contact via the press department at Twitter gets you a poop emoji, which in this case, and Larry, just to be clear, some of these people had moved to Ghana from other African nations to take up these jobs. Um, there were no protections in their contract right. for an event like this. They did move to the country from Nigeria and other neighboring countries because of their special expertise. And Twitter was very proud under Jack Dorsey to have set up this office in Africa. Jack Dorsey talked about potentially moving to Africa for six months. And so their legal status depended on their employment with Twitter. So they've been left in a lurch for so long. Part of the agreement with severance, with, with severance pay for Twitter was for them to get paid repatriation costs. And nothing has happened. And here's the other complication, Julia, that you rightly point out that if Twitter no longer has a presence in Ghana, realistically, Ghanaian authorities cannot, com cannot compel it to comply mm. if they don't have a legal entity in the country. Yeah, it's such a great point. Well, we're um, once again raising a torch or a flashlight for these people to try and um, get them some kind of better response than a poop emoji. Yes. Larry, great to have you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Google's been searching for solutions to fill the digital skills gap. We'll hear about its drive to give job seekers the tools they need to find better jobs. And it's working. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. Authorities in South Korea say 40 people have now died from flash floods and landslides in the past few days. 13 people died in a flooded underpass in the central part of the country where an extreme weather turned an ordinary road journey into a tragedy. As Michael Holmes reports. Working in mud and against the clock, rescuers in South Korea pump water from a flooded tunnel. Arcs of water redirected from the once clogged underpass, revealing some of the vehicles trapped inside. Dashcam video shows how quickly the tunnel filled up on Saturday. Local authorities say a levee broke after days of heavy rain across the country, sending a rush of water through the underpass, some cars barely escaping the deluge. But authorities say 15 vehicles, including a bus, were trapped in the tunnel, along with their drivers and passengers. Divers have been painstakingly searching for them and have retrieved multiple bodies from the scene. Many family members of those thought to be missing gathered at a nearby hospital, their misery compounded by the agony of a long wait for information. One man says he's speechless and says he hasn't eaten for hours while waiting for authorities to brief him. The tragedy has shocked South Korea, some people saying the government should have been better prepared after last year's torrential rains, which were the worst in 115 years. One man who lives near the tunnel says authorities should have closed it when flooding was expected. He says he feels like this could have easily happened to him, and he feels like part of himself died too. Heavy monsoon rains have caused dozens of deaths, not just in the tunnel, but across the country. Thousands of people forced to evacuate because of floods and landslides. In some areas, riverbanks completely collapsed because of saturated ground. And meteorologists warn it could get worse, with as much as 300 millimetres of additional rain forecast to fall in some parts of the country over the next few days. Other parts of Asia are also dealing with intense weather. Southern China bracing for a powerful storm which is expected to lash the area with strong winds and heavy rains in the next few days. And parts of New Delhi are still waterlogged, even though water levels in the Yamuna River, which flooded the city, have receded. But the water hasn't drained away yet, creating very wet and frustrating circumstances for people just trying to move about the city. Michael Holmes, CNN. And to Russia now, where classrooms are slowly becoming bleak monuments to the country's war dead. It's part of a patriotic program by the Kremlin and a means to stamp out early seeds of dissent against the war in Ukraine and the Putin regime. Claire Sebastian has more. The marching not perfectly in time. But what this ceremony lacks in military precision, it makes up for with propaganda value. These children in central Russia will now get the chance to sit at a new desk. Emblazoned with the face of one of Russia's war dead, a former pupil at this school killed just three days into the invasion. His grieving mother 
struggling through. These so-called hero desks turning classrooms into bleak memorials of a death toll Russia has otherwise tried to hide are actually part of a government initiative. Russia's ruling party says they now number over 14,000, though apparently include veterans of other wars. You see this picture, his name, he was our pupil just several years ago. He tried to save our country. Uh, and for young people, very young people, it's hard not to feel painfully. Daniel Kian, head of an openly anti-Kremlin teachers union now living outside Russia, says the atmosphere in schools changed overnight when the war started. Information so tightly controlled, he says multiple teachers have been fired, some even fined for speaking up. A fate that Olga, a teacher in St. Petersburg, we've changed her name and disguised her identity for safety reasons, narrowly avoided. I also tried to convince my colleagues that uh, our country has uh, committed a crime. One week later, the director of the school invited me to talk, and she warned me that if I continue, then uh, she will have to appeal to special body of the state. She meant FSB. And then there are the not-so-subtle curriculum changes. This video on the Crimean Bridge, part of a new state-controlled weekly lesson series launched last year called Conversations About Important Things. It's not just a transport crossing, the speaker explains, but a spiritual crossing. No mention of the huge explosion that caused part of the bridge to collapse a few months earlier. History is being rewritten in the textbooks. This one now includes the so-called special military operation. And it's not just recent history. It is a historic fact that Russians' state began with Kiev, the Kievsk Russia, so to say. But nowadays, the new textbooks of history are issued where this idea is removed. Scenes like this at a school in Crimea will also likely become much more common. Basic military preparation, a throwback to Soviet times, set to officially re-enter the school curriculum for older classes. It's a cheap, simple method of reaching a very large audience and to get across the government's position. It is, in essence, moral violence against children. CNN has reached out to the Russian Ministry of Education for comment on the purpose of these changes and got no response. Sitting at these hero desks in many schools, a reward for only the best students. A morbid incentive designed to breed a generation patriotic enough to accept a war whose consequences they are sure to inherit. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. Okay, coming up here on First Move, Messi in Miami. The iconic Lionel Messi superstar introduction to his adoring fans in South Florida. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Researchers expressing concern due to a sudden heat wave off the coast of Florida. It has water temperatures soaring to record levels that could put one of the state's most precious resources, coral reefs, at risk. CNN's meteorologist Derek Van Dam explains how the extreme heat has triggered coral bleaching. 
A heat wave off the coast of Florida is sending water temperatures to unprecedented highs. While that's not a problem for some swimmers, it is a major concern for coral reefs. Corals thrive with ocean temperatures in the mid-80s, but lately they have been soaring into the 90s. Where in the world are they measuring these off-the-chart record ocean temperatures? Including this NOAA sensor one research scientist showed me near Miami. It's broken its daily record the past four days in a row. South Florida's abnormally warm water could put area corals on the verge of extinction. You can tell right now it's producing... Dr. Andrew Baker is a professor of marine biology and ecology at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School. The marine heat wave is more or less throughout the Caribbean at this point. Uh, certain parts of the Caribbean, like Belize, are already bleaching and bleaching pretty severely. And Florida is where Belize was about a month ago. This is a healthy brown piece of coral. If it was to bleach, it would turn all white and could potentially die. That is what scientists are concerned about if this marine heat wave continues to build. Losing coral could be costly. Coral reefs generate billions of dollars for Florida's economy through activities like fishing and tourism, which wouldn't be possible without reefs to protect the species that rely on them. Well, we've been working for several years on ways to make corals more thermally tolerant. Engineering coral that can withstand even a five-degree temperature increase in our oceans will mitigate the effects of stronger marine heat waves that are expected in the future. Corals are one of the most sensitive ecosystems to the effects of climate change. Without them, we could lose a natural defense system as healthy corals help protect our coastlines during hurricanes. And so reef restoration efforts that are ongoing right now are really taking steps to plan for climate change, to try to make sure that we restore reefs to be suitable for a future environment and not the victims of it. Ken Niedermeyer is the technical director at Reef Renewal USA. He works to restore coral reefs in the Florida Keys and is hopeful about the future. There are corals that can live in hotter water. We just have to find them and try to repopulate with them. After one year, Dr. Baker's research is hitting its initial milestones, already seeing results with corals surviving in slightly warmer temperatures. We've had a few pilot uh, experiments out there on the reefs that we've manipulated to try to make corals more thermally tolerant, and this will be a natural test of that. Not ready to throw the towel in just yet. Optimism amid record-breaking weather patterns with no immediate signs of cooling off. Derek Van Dam, CNN. Miami. Now, one of the greatest footballers of all time arriving in Florida. Lionel Andres Messi! Lionel Messi celebrated at an Inter Milan introductory event Sunday night, which included the team's co-owner, David Beckham. Now, some tickets for Messi's first match on Friday are changing hands for as much as 110 thousand dollars Carlos Suarez joins us now is that true that's insane but he's certainly earning his price tag yeah, apparently uh, some tickets on some uh, reselling websites are going for that kind of uh, number. Uh, it was an incredible night out here as thousands of inner Miami 
uh, CF fans gathered to welcome Lionel Messi to South Florida. Now, Messi uh, doesn't make his official debut with the team until Friday, though he has a uh, team practice that is scheduled for tomorrow, uh, as I noted, uh, in, as I noted coming out to me here at least. Uh, right now, some tickets are going uh, for at least about $500 for Friday's match. But as you noted, some reselling websites have put some tickets at $110,000 just to watch one of the greatest soccer players make his, uh, uh, make his big debut uh, in the U.S. Of course, Julia, there is a great deal of expectation and hope that Lionel Messi is going to grow U.S. soccer. There really hasn't been this big of a name uh, when it comes to American soccer since Pelé played in New York City back in 1975. But all of this, of course, is adding to a great deal of hope and frenzy around Lionel Messi as we head into the coming years, especially come the 2026 World Cup. Of course, the U.S. is one of the host countries uh, for those yes, games. Yes, of course. Julia? And, and just to be clear, you can charge what you like. The question is, are people paying for it? Which is the other thing. Um, are you going to be there on Friday? Very quickly. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, my hope is to be here on Friday, though I'm not paying anywhere near $110,000 for a ticket. I'm being shouted out. I've got to go. Thank you, Carlos. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.